It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh-oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh, me alive. Oh, my God. The figure's dead. The crazy thing is then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer! The yum. Oh, my God. Thank you very much. After that, I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling. Which is fine by me, because I always think there's a story to be told. But, a word of warning from everyone around me... Do not give this tape to Earl! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second and last Don't Give This Tape to Earl of 2019. You know, this really wasn't supposed to be only the second one of the year, but with Retrogram now started, Select Game trying desperately to return to something approaching monthly, and me cranking out Phosphor.Fossils videos on YouTube at a pace that I'm able to schedule one every other day, although that's going to be changing after the beginning of the year. Uh, Don't Give This Tape to Earl is going to wind up being, I don't know, quarterly three times a year but really that's that's okay as some of you are aware i've been doing technical production on the tuesday night facebook and youtube livecast for mission log live a roddenberry star trek podcast and it's looking like my role will be expanding in 2020 though how exactly I honestly can't tell you yet because there's a lot of it up in the air now don't worry you won't be seeing my face on that show I'm uh, I'm much better off as Doc Severinsen than I am as Ed McMahon. There's uh, a lot of stuff up in the air, like I said, and that will, over the next few weeks, there will be some clarity to that, and I'll be able to talk more about it at the beginning of the year. But a lot of it is uh, it's taking up quite a bit of my time so far. Now, on the home front... As I think everyone now knows, in 2018, my ex put in for a transfer to Utah. And of course, she was going to be taking the kids with her. But then she asked me to tag along. She knew that kind of distance wasn't going to be good news for anybody. And she mainly needed my help taking care of the kids because of the time demands of her job. So here we are in Utah under the same roof. It's amazingly awkward at times, and I'm grateful that it was accepted early on that I was going to be claiming the basement floor as my recording studio and general hideout, because really, and I don't think anyone was under any illusions about this, I was coming here for my kids and not for her. Now, about three months ago, she got injured on the job. There's a lot of wrangling about work comp going on right now, and um, we are in dire danger of hitting the end of this year with zero income coming into the house, or at least nothing more than what I'm bringing in doing Mission Log Live. I uh, kind of, I had hoped that all the balls I had in the air regarding steady work, and by the way, at least two of those balls are my own, I was kind of hoping those would have landed somewhere by now with some certainty, but they haven't. It's kind of terrifying. I do want to take this opportunity to thank my Patreon supporters who have stuck with me over the past couple of years, even during quiet periods where there wasn't a hell of a lot of podcasting going on. Even Retrogram has been less frequent than I wanted it to be, because not only am I having to wrangle two kids to school and back every day, but now I'm having to help an adult 
who can't lift, can't reach, and thanks to the runaround on work comp, can't get physical therapy or an MRI or anything, none of which is helping her get back to work. So needless to say, I haven't been behind the mic a whole lot, and I apologize for that. I do appreciate those of you who are still with me. Your help is appreciated, and at this moment it's needed now more than ever. I'm hoping that in the new year, maybe things can finally line up and I can stop listening for the sound of the other shoe dropping. I have heard that sound so much over the past five years that I feel like I'm taking dance lessons from an octopus. I'm ready for the upheavals to just bugger off for a while. Maybe then I can take a deep breath and relax. And, you know, I could sit here and talk to you folks about stuff like old action figures for a bit. Now, the topic for this latest Don't Give This Tape to Earl is one that I've had jotted down as a potential topic since I started doing this podcast, and I apologize, I'm just now getting around to it. Now, in previous shows, I've talked before about my earliest Star Wars action figure memories, but let's talk about other memories and other toy lines, because here's the thing, I'm kind of universe agnostic. I I like mixing and matching things. It you know, it was fun as a kid. It's still fun now. My uh my Kenner Death Star is set up on a shelf behind me, and I'm hoping I don't have to break it down and put it back into the mox- box to move anytime soon. But it um uh, first off, I've run some LED lighting through the little holes in the columns that support each floor of the Kenner Death Star. And so there's this blue light that lights up the whole thing from the inside. And there's an Obi cat talking to me. Yes, Obi. Hi, Obi. Um, and there are a variety of figures in there uh, who arguably have no business being in the Death Star. Uh, there are a couple of Daleks keeping guard over Mr. Spock on one floor and on another floor the on the floor with the catwalk that opens and closes uh you have the flash as in TV's the flash as in DC comics the flash uh apparently planning his escape with the help of Flash Gordon while ET uh sits over by the wall and plays an Atari 2600 you'd kind of have to be there I've never been the kind of person to say, oh, well, you know, I have my Star Wars figures in this tray, but I have my Buck Rogers figures in this tray, and never the twain shall meet because that wouldn't be canon. The point of action figures is to just have fun. It, it's not about being canon. Uh, you know, another example <laughs> of a display that I had set up for a while, I had to move my shelves, so unfortunately I had to... Uh, to knock this down and I have yet to put it back up because other things have taken precedence in real life. But I had the cantina band set up and uh, Funko did a reaction. They did a line of reaction figures from Gremlins 
and one of them was Gizmo with the little keyboard that he plays in the movie, where he is uh, singing along with the keyboard. And so I've got Gizmo playing keyboard with the Cantina Band, while Gene Simmons from KISS is, you know, standing out front playing bass and just being Gene Simmons. You know, as you do if you happen to be Gene Simmons. So there you go. Um, it's The action figure shelf is a place for fun. It's not a place for, you know, oh, no, that would never happen. Batman would never fight Deadpool because they're from different publishers. No, Toy Shelf is the one place where Batman can fight Deadpool if he feels the need, which, you know, Deadpool will probably say something to piss Batman off, and that's how that starts. But speaking of how things start, let's kind of go back to the beginning of when I started collecting action figures. Obviously, Star Wars was really the first thing like that that I had. You know, the first action figures, the first action figures in that scale. Now, it was not, Star Wars was not the first action figure line in that scale. For that, you probably have to go to Takara Toys Metal Man uh, from Japan, which uh, some of those were available over here under various, <laughs> under various brand names, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were just straight-up knockoffs of the uh, Metal Man line. There were also the Fisher-Price Adventure people, some of which were really cool, and sadly, I never I never had any of those. The first three-and-three-quarter-inch line, other than Star Wars, that I distinctly remember um, acquiring some of were Migo's Micronauts line. Now, the... Some of the Micronauts were uh, originally tooled in Japan as part of the Metal Man line. And as such, you had figures that were, you know, they were heavy Metal Man. They were made of solid die-cast metal, and they were heavy. Um, I don't remember having a huge number of Micronauts. I remember... Uh, there was a guy who had a thing that stuck on his back that had a couple of things that looked like fan blades. I think that was a Croyer, if I'm not mistaken. I remember having one of the Pharoids, which was um, there was a you know there was a metal action figure of a guy, but he came equipped with a plastic, something like an Egyptian sarcophagus. And I remember distinctly uh, this one was you know, really bright day-glow pink and had uh, some of the features printed on the sarcophagus had kind of a gold foil or a gold finish applied to them. It was pretty cool. The hands of the Micronauts were almost always plastic because they had that little Mego ball joint thing going on at the wrist. And, you know, the other thing about the Micronauts that I noticed immediately even as a kid was they moved in ways the Star Wars figures didn't. The Star Wars, the Kenner Star Wars form factor was, you know, three and three quarter inches with five points of articulation. The neck turned the head left and right. The shoulders could move arms up or down. And there were hip joints that moved the legs up or down. You know, you could have them standing or you could have them sitting. 
it was almost impossible to pose them running because the balance would be off and the thing would fall over. With Micronauts, you could get into more posability because they had the wrists, they had elbow joints, they had shoulder joints, so you are right there, you're up to six points of articulation, so you have, you know, two arms. You have, um, you had a hip swivel joint, then you had the leg joints, and you had knee joints. So, there you're up to seven with the hip swivel joints, and another four with the two legs. Okay, so you're up to 11 points of articulation. Uh, in some cases, you would have uh, moving ankles. You know, then you're up to 13 points of articulation. And it, that was just kind of crazy because I had gotten so used to the Star Wars form factor. And now you have these micronauts who, you know, everything, everything moves. Well, the problem with action figures, especially if you're a little boy playing with them and not always playing... <laughs> not always playing gently with them because, hey, adventures in space can be pretty rough. Um, the more points of articulation you have, the more points you have that can eventually break. And we'll talk about that more with the other Mego lines. The Micronauts, you know, like I said, were based, um, many of them were based on Metal Man figures that originated in Japan, and so there was an unusual number of points of articulation on them. The more typical Mego figures uh, didn't necessarily have the wrist joints, didn't always have the hip swivel joint, didn't always have ankle joints, and so the the more typical Mego figures, I'm thinking, were lines like Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the black hole and occasionally it, it, it's kind of interesting because you could tell how tight a you can tell now how tight a deadline was by counting the points of articulation on an action figure the star wars action figures didn't show up until 1978 because it wasn't until after the movie came out that ink dried on paper giving kenner the rights to the toy line and the reason that didn't happen until after the movie came out was because no one knew for sure if it was going to be a hit or if it was going to be another Logan's Run where, you know, you're talking about it a lot that summer and then it's gone. But I think it was evident very quickly that Star Wars was in very much another... It was in another stratum, really, of movie making and storytelling and merchandisability. And the funny thing is, Mego is a company that passed on the rights to Star Wars because why would you you know, why would you get the toy rights to something as ephemeral as a movie? Because back then movies were very ephemeral. They were there, they were gone, and you know you didn't base a toy line on a movie because the you know the movie was going to be gone no one was going to be talking about it it was not coming out on VHS or DVD or even Betamax 
in 1977. Uh, there was going to be no reminder of that movie. So the smart money was, you know, you didn't base your toy lines on a movie. Maybe a television series. Chips had been a pretty good seller for Mego. Uh, Chips is another, another one of the, uh, you know, higher points of articulation lines that Mego had along lines of Buck Rogers and the Black Hole. I remember wanting the Chips action figures. Now they had they had larger, they had larger figures that were almost more like dolls. They were more like the GI Joe figures that had previously been kind of the the boys toy standards um but once star wars had you know come to stay and once kenner's star wars line made a huge splash as far as you know making that company a lot of money all of a sudden that 12 inch doll sized you know almost barbie compatible uh, boy's figure style was almost out the door. Kenner did a uh, a 12-inch line of figures for Star Wars. In addition to the 3 and 3 quarter inch line, they kind of hedged their bets. But the, you know, the foot-tall ones never sold as well as the small ones. And I think a big part of that was the price point. At least at the time, you know, around 1978, 79 or so, an action figure cost you maybe three to five dollars. And, you know, that was with accessories. That was in the packaging. You know, we're not talking about getting one second hand. That was a brand new one. Three to five dollars. I remember uh, the first Star Wars figures I got were Chewbacca and R2-D2. And I remember that we got them at the service merchandise at Central Mall in Fort Smith, which service merchandise is one of these store chains that, you know, will probably be discussed in this show that have long since disappeared. But I remember the price point of those figures being three to five bucks. Now three to five bucks was also more valuable in the late 70s than it is now. Three to five bucks now maybe you get to put in a down payment on a cheeseburger with that. Maybe. It depends on what part of the country you're in, you know, especially, you know, in terms of the U.S. And, you know, it depends on the cheeseburger. It, it might be a, a good down payment on a cheeseburger. Maybe you're putting that cheeseburger in layaway. Uh, or actually, what I'm really saying here is maybe you're not getting a cheeseburger today. That's how expensive those things were at the time. And the the cheaper the tooling, the less the manufacturers could charge for them. So the uh, you know the more points of articulation, the more stuff that can go wrong in tooling and manufacturing, that's where your price starts to go up. And I remember that Migos action figures for Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was a movie that came out at the same time and the same month in 1979 as The Black Hole. Now, you know, movies are in production longer than, uh, you know, longer than a TV show. And so, you know, movies, you can lock down the license way ahead of time. And it became the practice after the, you know, smash success of Star Wars for 
studios doing sci-fi properties to start announcing these things you know, much, much further ahead, uh, partly because they wanted to make the licensing opportunities available and start bringing in the money. The rights to the Buck Rogers action figures were bought by Mego, if I remember correctly, and it's and it's somewhere on the on the logbooks timeline at the logbook.com um, slash menu. If you go there and you kind of have the history timeline, go to uh, 1978, I believe Mego bought the rights to Buck Rogers a year before Buck Rogers ever hit a screen. And it bought the rights to the Black Hole months, you know, almost a year before that movie came out. And, of course, that movie met with a very mixed reception. <laughs> and Star Trek The Motion Picture, we had known that something was happening there for, for more than a year, basically. Because if you recall, or maybe you don't, but I'll tell you anyway, Star Trek The Motion Picture was originally going to be a TV revival of Star Trek on a new network started by Paramount Pictures, and it was supposed to debut in February 1978. And what happened there is that um, the world, or well, the world, the American broadcasting ecosystem was not ready for a fourth network at that time, and so it never happened, but the work that had been put into building sets for this Star Trek series um, was kind of amortized into the cost of what Paramount decided was now going to be a major feature film. And so you went from this Star Trek revival that would not have had Leonard Nimoy to a Star Trek revival that did have Leonard Nimoy, but was just you know, one movie to sate the appetite of Star Trek fans. Um, the first live-action Star Trek in 10 years, basically, because it had been 1969 when the original series went off the air. Star Trek The Motion Picture, there was a lot of advance notice, and Mego probably locked that down as soon as the rights were up for bid. However, interestingly, the... Action figures Mego did for Star Trek The Motion Picture had only five points of articulation, much like the Kenner Star Wars figures. And this kind of indicates that there was... You know, there was probably a rush to get them manufactured. And Mego had already invested heavily in the Buck Rogers and Black Hole lines. And so Star Trek probably got kind of the, the short end of the stick there. Not... Not that that's a bad thing. They were great figures, and uh, I certainly enjoyed mine. And I actually have not only a a few surviving specimens of my original collection there, and and we'll talk by, about why I don't have all of them still later. Uh, I actually have, I think, three different characters um, behind me. If those of you have seen my YouTube videos... Uh, what you see behind me is what I call the packaged wall. And basically it's a bunch of retail grid wall fixtures with the hooks, you know, like you would have in a store. And I have carded action figures from various lines lined up back there. Sort of like, uh, you know, sort of like it would be the world's 
best toy store ever. You know, sort of like a time-traveling toy store because you have stuff from the 70s, you have stuff from the 80s, the late 80s, the 90s, and you have stuff from now. The great thing about Mego's other toy lines that it had going, uh, Buck Rogers, The Black Hole, they had the same number of points of articulation, and so you could, you know, you could swap vehicles, you could, you know, you could tag team stuff that just just never happened on screen. Tweaky and R2-D2 spent a lot of time hanging out with R2 and C-3PO, and, you know, so they're kind of like the... The, the droid gang, and, you know, they would steal Luke's land speeder and just go off on their own adventures. Uh, and in the meantime, the, uh, you know, the black hole, actually, they did not do vehicles in, in the U.S. I, they had a, they had a version of the USS Palomino, which is the spacecraft that we start the movie in, which our heroes arrive in. Uh, there was going to be an action figure compatible version of that vehicle and it was canceled probably because the movie um didn't exact it wasn't exactly rapturously received at the box office or in the movie reviews of the day and i i've done a whole episode of this podcast defending the black hole before so if you do like the black hole, you should go listen to that. If you don't like the black hole, you should also go listen to that because I'll, you know, I'll give you what for. I'll I'll arm wrestle you, you know, just reach through the mic and get that fight going. But the, uh, you know, the human crew members of the black hole could get in Buck Rogers' starfighter and escape from Maximilian. And that was great. Now, there was a playset for the Star Trek The Motion Picture figures. It was the Bridge of the Enterprise. And I remember seeing it in the Sears and J.C. Penney Christmas wish books at the time, which were, I, I believe those things arrived, they were mailed out in September or October of their respective years. And I would just spend... <laughs> the whole next year until the next catalog arrived, drooling over the stuff in the last one. You know, I always wanted the uh, the big space 1999 Eagle toy that Mattel did in the pre-Star Wars 70s because, you know, the Eagle from Space 1999 is just one of the coolest space fictional space vehicles that anyone has ever designed and you know, I lusted after that thing. I never got one. I mean, I don't even have a, a little tiny metal one now. I I completely missed the boat. I, I do have a 3D model of one that I play around with occasionally in uh, 3D Studio Max that looks great. And, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, I, I mess around with that virtually and kind of cry into my pixels that I never got one to play with. So that's that's how you deal with that sort of disappointment. But there the uh the Star Trek the Motion Picture Bridge playset looked really cool in the catalogs, you know, it had a had a place for everyone to sit, you know, had Captain Kirk's chair and everyone's duty stations. I mean, it's just kind of the the Barbie dream dollhouse of, of Star Trek fans. And the reality of it is that apparently this thing was made of very thin brittle vacuum-formed plastic. It was not solid like the Kenner playsets tended to be, and it was very, very fragile and prone to... The Klingons could, could really pile on a lot of damage 
on the bridge of the Enterprise very quickly. And so maybe it's a mercy that I never got one because it might not have survived all these years, which a, a surprising number of the Kenner playsets I have did survive. Let's see some other lines that were out at the time. Uh, Mattel had a line of action figures for Battlestar Galactica, which were five points of articulation like Kenner's Star Wars figures, but they were slightly out of scale. They were a larger scale, almost like they were, um, you know, a full four inches rather than three and three quarter inches. Uh, they were they were too big to fit in your Star Wars characters' vehicles. They'd bump their heads in the Death Star, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I was kind of underwhelmed with them to begin with because the likenesses were just kind of strange. They they weren't exactly spot on. I remember having uh, Commander Adama. I remember having, and I still have, uh, the robot dog, Muffet, the Daggett. Um, and I had a green insectoid creature called an Ovion, which had four arms and had this kind of mesh top, really, <laughs> under which you know, presumably this thing was naked. And it's kind of funny that they, you know, obviously if you're doing a sci-fi toy line, you're looking for any of the aliens you can. You know, you're looking for any any villains you can. The Ovions were not were not our friends by any stretch. Uh, but they were the shortest Battlestar Galactica figures, aside from the dog, and so they were the ones I played with the most. Um, I also had, I believe it was called the Imperious Leader, which was the dude up in the chair who gave the Cylons their orders, at least until Baltar came along. And it had this enormous head that didn't move, and this kind of... I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be hair or an external brain. It was... Um, yeah, it was kind of funky looking, and it had this, the uh, all the Battlestar Galactica figures that Mattel did had these very thin cloth capes or robes or what have you, and uh, they they shredded very easily. I never did get a Cylon. I mean, the Cylon is really the get of the Battlestar Galactica action figure line from that period. Um, very few of them apparently have survived with the chrome finish intact and if you do see one like that on ebay it's going to cost you you know you're going to have to skip a house payment or something for that uh if it's still on the card <laughs> you better just skip buying a house altogether the uh the heads on the battlestar galactica figures i remember were slightly out of scale with the bodies if that makes any sort of sense is you know it wasn't we're not talking Funko Pop oversized heads, but we're talking about just just enough of a perceptible difference that it was like, you know, even as a kid, you're like, huh, you know, Commander Dama's head is really, uh, really outsized <laughs> compared to his hands and his feet. And, uh, and there you go. So I didn't really, I, I was a fan of Battlestar Galactica. I just didn't get many of the toys. I remember they... It seemed like they were always, they were always in short supply where we were. There were a few other, a few other figure lines that I collected, but not many. Um, you know, once we got into the '80s, obviously I was still, you know, very much in a Star Wars mindset. You know, entire figure lines came out for each of the Star Wars movies 
after that. And I remember also at the time uh, Coleco, makers of the ColecoVision, but also makers of the uh, those terrific little mini arcade games that would run on uh, 4C cell batteries. They also used their rights to some of those games to do little rubber figures. Um, rubber or PVC, I'm not sure. These did not have any joints. They, uh, you know, they didn't move. You could bend them. I guess they were kind of like bendy figures. But they would only, you know, you could only bend them so far. And they had uh, a Pac-Man line with kind of a, a sub-assortment, if you want to call it, of Ms. Pac-Man that had different packaging. But the only the only characters that came on the Ms. Pac-Man packaging were Ms. Pac-Man and Mrs. Pac-Man. Um, uh, there were about six of these figures. I've got... Uh, I've got a few of them. There were six or seven of them. I've got a few of them on the cards now that I've gotten, you know, in more recent years. And the, uh, you know, that was really, that really had nothing to do with whether or not they were compatible with, you know, Star Wars this or Buck Rogers that. This was just to do with my all-consuming obsession with Pac-Man at the time. Uh, the Pac-Man figures, and there were also um, Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. figures, and a figure of Mario that Coleco came out with. These all stood um, a couple, you know, two, maybe two and a half inches at the tallest. And, uh, but, you know, I, I still have fond memories of those. Uh, 1983 and 84, you had figures coming out for Return of the Jedi. I, I was still very much into them. But by 1985, which is about the time I would have turned 13, the power of the Force figures were trying to keep the Star Wars brand alive on the toy shelf. But I did not get any of those at the time because of something that had happened at home. About the time I was 13, uh, regardless of where my active interests were, my, uh, let's see, 80, yeah, 85, I would have been 13, the summer of 85. My mother decided that I had, you know, I had better things to do. I had better things to be interested in. And I remember, uh, she made a big show of having me box up all my figures, all of my Star Wars, all of my Buck Rogers and Black Hole figures, Star Trek, even the Battlestar Galactica guys, and even the weird stuff like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. You know, put them all in boxes, you know, and she kind of stood and lorded over me you know, waiting for me to do this, which I was in no hurry to do because, you know, these were, these were my buddies. These were my besties. I, I was kind of a weird, lonely kid for reasons that didn't really come into sharper focus until I was an adult and, you know, tested as, you know, very likely being on the autistic spectrum. And I was almost certainly ADHD as a kid as well, just like both of my kids are. You know, they got it from somewhere. And so, you know, I wasn't always the kid who 
left the house and went over to friends' houses and did things. Um, because of the way the school district was weirdly, I don't know if you want to, want to call it gerrymandered at the time in Fort Smith, Arkansas, most of my friends were all the way across town from me. Uh, there were only... There were only two or three kids who, <laughs> in my immediate vicinity who wanted anything to do with me. And so it was, uh, you know, grade school was kind of a, it was kind of a weird time. I had a lot of friends. I was not able to spend a lot of time hanging out with them after school. And so, you know, my, my action figures were my, my BFFs, really. And, you know, here was my mom standing over me, you know, telling me to box them up. And, you know, she was making it sound like, you know, we're, you know you're not going to miss these. We're going to get rid of them. You're never going to see them again, and you're never going to miss them. And, you know, when I dragged my feet on doing that because it was not something I wanted to do, you know, she, you know. Then, of course, you know, good uh, good Southern upbringing wouldn't be a good Southern upbringing without someone screaming scripture at you. And so, you know, I got this whole thing about it's time to put away childish things. And I, uh, you know, I boxed them up. I, I remember distinctly she gave them a bunch of my dad's empty cigar boxes because my dad threw, threw, uh, went through a lot of red, red dot cigars. And so the boxes had hinged lids and everything. And so, uh, and, and to this day, some of these figures still have this kind of faint, vague tobacco odor to them because of that. But I filled up, you know, probably about 10 or 12 of these boxes with these, you know, with all of my old friends, and I was to, you know, put them up on a shelf in my closet. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the past talking about how rocky my relationship was with my father, but sometimes looking back, I think things weren't much better with my mom. Um, I really resented this event when it happened. You know, especially when it got into the shouty side of things. Um, I, I just liked having my old friends around for this, really for the same reason I like having them around today. You know, they're, they're so attached to memories of kind of being able to escape from, you know, this weird little world I grew up in where, you know, there were adults over all the time. You know, my parents could have friends over all the time. My friends were slightly less accessible to me. I, you know, I had coordination problems and fine motor skill problems as a kid. I, it's kind of amazing that I learned to type as well as I did when I got a computer. And, and uh, you know, I was not able to ever learn to ride a bicycle because of these issues. So, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here pouring my heart out saying, oh, I was so abused. But, you know, because I don't feel that way, I'm, I was lucky to have what I had, I guess, from a material standpoint. And I sought refuge in those things because, you know, like I said, those had become my friends. I was kind of a, a weird, solitary kid. 
Now, one figure that was not in any of those cigar boxes was, drumroll please, Blue Snaggletooth. Now, this kind of gets back into Star Wars lore, and I'll have to explain this. Snaggletooth was one of the characters in the Cantina, and in, I believe it was 1979, well, it may have been 70, it's probably 78 now that I think of it, well, late 78, early 79, maybe, okay, in time for Christmas 78, that's actually what makes the most sense here. Sears had a catalog exclusive in their Christmas wish book that was a basically a cardboard backdrop of the outside of the cantina from Star Wars and included with this backdrop which was you know this cheap printed cardboard you know as cheapest thing you could possibly imagine it was really there to sell um four figures of alien creature characters who were in also associated with the cantina including Greedo, Walrus Man, Hammerhead, and Snaggletooth. However, there was a misread on Kenner's part when they sculpted the figure of Snaggletooth. Uh, they had a figure of the character sitting down. And so they, they put spacey-looking boots on him, made him just as tall as the other characters. And then uh, they later discovered, oh, wait, uh... <laughs> that that guy was played by, you know, a, a short actor, you know, someone about the height of a child, and the character was walking around in bare feet. They got reference photos that they did not have access to before, and really most of the reference photos that, uh, that people have of Snaggletooth from the original Star Wars aren't even from the original Star Wars. They are from the Star Wars Holiday Special. So... These figures were among the first, uh, the first of the second wave of Star Wars figures to come out, and so uh, Sears kind of did a box set of them with this cheesy cardboard backdrop of the Cantina, and that was how I got those figures. I didn't get them on separate cards. And the blue Snaggletooth apparently word got out at some point. Oh, you know the blue Snaggletooth figure is wrong. They they had the wrong photos for it. And then they did a, a shorter Snaggletooth in a red outfit with the bare feet. And they had that one individually available in the stores. And I got one of those. And I guess my parents had heard from someone, oh, you know, the blue Snaggletooth is going to be worth a lot of money. Spoiler alert. He is. Um, and so that was actually the first of my Star Wars figures to get taken away from me on the notion that you know we're gonna we're gonna box him up somewhere and keep him and he's gonna be worth a lot of money someday and so i remember at one point uh after the great action figure boxing incident i uh went to my dad's dresser and you know my dad being who my dad was may he rest in peace <laughs> heaven only knows what things i completely ignored that kids are probably not supposed to see that were probably in the same space but one of those cigar boxes was in his dresser drawer and in that cigar box was blue snaggletooth and i stole blue snaggletooth back and put him with my other star wars figures in the cigar boxes they were in in my closet 
Um, and I don't really know psychologically why I did it. I, I think it was just like, I think I was making up my mind at that point, I am never getting rid of these, and I don't want to lose that one, and I don't really care about what the, <laughs> you know, what the street value of a blue snaggletooth is. I just wanted to make sure I didn't lose him. And so I kind of stole him back and put him with the other ones. And I still have that one to this day. Uh, although he has recently, uh, he met with an accident. I was actually, uh, for the first time in many years, putting the figures out on shelves that I had gotten since we, uh, since we moved to Utah. And I had gotten these kind of cheesy plastic shelves from Walmart that are deep enough that you could display things on both sides. So I had this, the shelves kind of sticking out in the middle of the room thinking I'd put figures in the front, figures in the back, and you could walk all around it. And I even did a couple of YouTube videos about this, you know, that this was the display that I was setting up. You know, I was building battery-powered internal lighting into the shelves. I've, you know, I was trying to finally give my old friends the display that was worthy of them. The only problem with these shelves kind of sticking out into the middle of the room was that you know, you you got a, a five-year-old, you got a five-year-old who's going to bump into shelves. You got cats who, you know, run around the house and play. They're going to bump into the shelves. They're going to knock stuff over. And that happened to Blue Snaggletooth. And the damnedest thing happened, his his chest broke. I, mean, I guess, you know, the plastic is, this happened in late 2018. That plastic is, you know, at that point, 40 years old. So I guess it was kind of brittle a piece of its chest broke off and its head fell off. The rest of the figure was perfectly intact. Now, I got some super glue and very, very painstakingly, very carefully glued it back together. You almost, if you don't know that something has happened to the figure, you almost don't know that there was ever any damage. You know, I... I didn't want to have to buy a new one. I just wanted mine fixed. And so that's what I did. And I did it so there's, you know, very little, if any, sign of glue present if you look at it or even touch it. And the head still moves. So really, that was kind of a victory. Now, given that that chest piece broke and had to be repaired, uh, the net worth of that action figure is pro probably now... Uh, you know, hovering somewhere in the zero to five dollar range, which is uh, kind of crazy for a blue snaggletooth. But you know, I was just trying to fix my old buddy. My mother died when I was fourteen years old, and one thing that I did uh, in the year, sometime in the year after she died was that I got all those cigar boxes out of the closet in my bedroom. And I hung them up on the wall. I, I tore the lids off, hung the boxes up on the wall, used them as shelves, and put all of my figures back on display. Now, this was uh, this is kind of a weird move. If you're, a, if you're uh, you know, now a teenager, you're about to be old enough to drive, and you're still displaying your Star Wars figures that at this point are less than 10 years old. And, you know, Star Wars is over and done with. It's not cool anymore. You know, we're all watching Rambo now. Well, I didn't at the time. Um, but uh, it was kind of an act of defiance in a weird sort of way. Of, 
uh, someone somewhere can probably interpret what it means that I did that. You know, that this, you know, is probably indicative deep down of some, you know, very complex relationship I had with my mother, which that would be an accurate assessment. I think I have that same relationship with every other human being on the planet. It's complex. Um, but the figures were back on display. And uh, this, you know, now going into the late 1980s, they were about to have some some company. Probably around 19... I, I'm going to say it was late 87 because this was after Star Trek The Next Generation came out and I had gotten thoroughly hooked on it. Um, I was an avid reader of Starlog magazine. Uh, that was really one of two defining periodical publications of my youth. Starlog and Electronic Games. And those two things the, the style of writing in them and you know and i'm sure the subject matter had a lot to do with it um i was in love that made me want to learn to write it made me want to learn to write in a journalistic vein if you will and so i can't state uh how big of an influence starlog and electronic games magazines were uh, in the back of Starlog, there were classified ads, and there was one that caught my eye. It was a uh, a mail-order place in Tennessee, Dunlap, Tennessee, if, if I recall correctly, called Star Tech. And it was run by a gentleman named Bill Anchors. And, you know, it was this kind of cheap and cheesy mail-order catalog that you could send off for. And I did duly send off for one. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that what caught my eye at the time was the... Uh, the pins of the Star Trek The Next Generation communicators that they wore on their chest, on their uniforms. But also in Star Trek's catalog, I discovered that the three and three quarter inch action figure um, format was still alive and well. Um, a company in the UK had just started rolling out Doctor Who figures. I loved Doctor Who. And, you know, there were Daleks that were the correct size to, you know... <laughs> go into battle on the side of wrong along with Maximilian and the stormtroopers <laughs> and Tiger Man. <laughs> because, you know, I, I would still do the mixing and matching thing on the, on the display shelves, the very rudimentary display shelves that I had up in my room. And there were also um, figures from the 80s that I had completely missed out on. There was a very small line, uh, four figures total from Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And there was also a new line of action figures coming out for Star Trek The Next Generation. And these were all in the three and three quarter inch format. And before I knew it, while I was still in high school, and, you know, according to my mom and probably everyone else who possibly could have known, uh, too old to be worrying about these things. I started spending, you know, whatever allowance money that I had on adding to my action figure collection. So here I am, um, you know, going into being 16 years old. By most people's measure, I should be, 
you know, being really interested in girls. I should be, you know, getting out and misbehaving. And, you know, a, a lot of kids that I knew my age were already, you know, getting into their parents' liquor cabinets or what have you. I really had no interest in that because I suppose on some psychological level, boy, I'm really psychoanalyzing the hell out of myself here, aren't I? Um, you know, I, I guess I kind of felt like someone had tried to steal my childhood and there was no way I was going to let that happen. And so, you know, before you knew it, you had Captain Picard and, you know, another Captain Kirk and, you know, Doctor Who and Daleks all lining up on these makeshift shelves that I'd put up in my bedroom. And that's, uh, I suppose that's kind of questionable. <laughs> but at the same time, the thing was, I was getting these for the same reason that I was, that I had kept my Star Wars figures. You know, these, these characters, you know, these were my new friends. Hey, I wanted them to meet my old friends and enemies and frenemies, whatever you want to call them. And so, yeah, Data got to hang out with Tweaky and Vincent and C-3PO and R2. And, uh, you know, because I would do themed things like, you know, you know, okay, all, all friendly robots are on this one little, are, are in this one cigar box. You know, bad robots, they're in this other cigar box. And so, you know, there's Maximilian and the Sentry Robot from the Black Hole. And there's, uh, you know, the Death Star droid. And, you know, the torture droids from Jabba the Hutt's palace from Return of the Jedi. I would group stuff like that. I still occasionally do mix and match things like that. Although these days I tend to display my older figures, um, you know, with, you know, with appropriate decorums, like, you know, this, these are the ones from 1978. These are the ones from 1979. And, you know, want to do little labels like it's a museum display and put them in front of the appropriate vehicles and so on. But a mix and match is always going to be a, a thing with me. In 1992, uh, you know, first off, I should preface this by saying that the, uh, the original Star Trek The Next Generation toy line didn't really go anywhere. Looking back on the first season of the show, um, they couldn't really afford to do action very effectively and so it was kind of a it was kind of a brainy show i i thought the first season of star trek the next generation um was a bit closer to twilight zone than it was to star wars and so as far as toys being sold to kids went that fizzled pretty quickly and the uh the Star Trek The Next Generation toy line got canceled and uh, kind of faded from memory. Okay, so there we're talking 1987 into 88. In 1992, Playmates, uh, which was better known for doing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles figures, uh, started doing uh, Star Trek The Next Generation figures in a 4-inch format, so kind of like the old Battlestar Galactica figures that uh, Mattel was doing, except these were much more detailed. They came with about a, a gazillion props each, you know, phasers, tricorders, toolkits, you know, hypo sprays, if you're Dr. Crusher, what have you. Um, 
you know, they came with stuff, you know, Picard came with his, his laptop that sat on his desk. Data came with this weird thing that, you know, supposedly his self-diagnostic tool. Now we never saw it on TV, but the figure came with it. And it kind of, you know, looking back uh, from this distance, it kind of reminds me of the, the diagnostic table uh, for the, uh, the 12-inch figures of the $6 million man from 1976 or so, which I believe that was also Kenner. Um, kind of learning how to do this sci-fi character thing, how to milk it for as long as possible. Uh, I became an avid collector of the Playmates Star Trek The Next Generation toys. Um, Christmas 1993, they had toy lines out for both Star Trek The Original Series and Deep Space Nine. And of course, um, 95 Voyager came along. I collected all these things. I mean, a ridiculous number of them. Um, and it was about this time that I started drawing a line in the sand as far as what I would and would not buy. I do not have a complete set of Playmates Star Trek figures because, you know, after I had bought, you know, Captain Picard in uniform... I did not circle around and buy Captain Picard in the Season 1 uniform, which was slightly different. It didn't have a collar on it. Uh, who cares? I did get Captain Picard from the holodeck, you know, where he's dressed up like a hard-boiled detective. I did not get Captain Picard in disguise as a Romulan. I was, I was starting to draw a line in the sand because I was now the one paying for these. Because, you know, once you get past 1993, uh, I was living in an apartment. I had rent to pay. I had bills to pay. Um, and, I, yeah, it's kind of interesting. That's about the time where I finally start drawing a line in the sand. Okay, I'm not getting every single one of these. In 1995 or so, Hasbro restarted the Star Wars action figure line a couple of years ahead of the uh, the special editions coming out. And they started out really, really ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker looked like he had been, you know, working out in the gym since Return of the Jedi, um, you know, to name just one example. And they really took a lot of their cues from the Masters of the Universe toys. It's like bulging muscles, you know, huge oversized pectoral muscles and weird, you know, these weird kind of spread eagle stance that and you know i i understand you know you're going into the 90s you have the masters of the universe influence you have the uh, you have the influence in the wrestling toys so you kind of have to meet that and you want your heroes to be you know you want luke skywalker and han solo to be perhaps a bit more muscular than they had been in the movies but then you know, they come along, and it's like Ben Kenobi is super muscular and, you know, almost has this hunchback because his shoulders are so square. And I passed on those initially. And Now, I did get an R2-D2 for old time's sake, and I can tell you exactly what I did with it. I put it on my desk at work at the TV station. I, uh, I had a spare morn from Deep Space Nine. Morn always was the guy who was always in Cork's bar and never said one line of dialogue, but he was such a popular and ever-present character that he merited an action figure in the first wave 
of figures from Deep Space Nine. So I had a spare Morn, and I had this R2-D2, and I had one of my Daleks sitting on my desk at the TV station. Because why not? Um, because that was always... That, that kind of became a thing that I that I would keep at work with me. Um, and that would be a feature of, you know, nearly everywhere I worked for years and years to come. In 1997, I moved to Green Bay to take a job that was more interesting, had much, you know, had much better future prospect and it paid much better. And so once I had the rent paid and the bills paid, Hey, guess what? 1998, the first preview action figures came out for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. It was also right about this time that Playmate's Star Trek figure line was petering out, tapering off, however you want to put it. And so it was kind of like I shifted from Star Trek back to Star Wars, which was my first love, really, if you think about it. And... um to my delight, I discovered that not only had Hasbro rediscovered what basic human proportion, body proportions, looked like, they had started doing figures that Kenner had skipped for a variety of reasons, you know, such as the Cantina Band or uh, you know, Jabba's, Jabba's Dancing Girl who got fed to the Sarlacc or Grand Moff Tarkin. Now, that was, that was a really good example of a figure that I thought... Um, you know, should have always been there, but wasn't. And so, you know, when I discovered that Hasbro had finally figured out what human beings look like, <laughs> uh, you know, I dived wholeheartedly back into the Star Wars thing. And with Star Wars Episode One, I made a concerted effort to try to get all of them. And I think that was the last time I did that. Um... I think I did succeed in getting all of the Episode 1 figures. In fact, the very last one I got, he's still on the card, hanging on the wall behind me. It's... I forget the character's name. Um, he's hes the old guy with the long beard who was advising Padme, or advising Queen Amidala in the early parts of the movie. You know, you know you're going to have to go with the Jedi. You can't stay here. You won't be safe. Um, that character still have him on the card. I have no idea if he's worth more on the card or if I need to bust him out and put him on the shelf with everyone else. But, you know, every every variety, every variant battle droid, I got it. Um, every Gungan character, I got it. But that was the last time I did that because um, at this point, you know, now I was I was having to pay for a new car. I was paying rent, I was paying bills, and, you know, I was also having to, uh, you know, direct money to other things like medical expenses, so the, the Phantom Menace was really the last time, and, and I predict it is going to be, is going to have been the last time I really tried to get the entire line. Now, in 1999, I got word from Arkansas that my dad had had a stroke and wasn't looking too good. And between that and some factors going on at work that I believe I've covered in the previous edition of this podcast where I was talking about my, 
my time working in television in Green Bay, which was, you know, for the most part, it was one of the best jobs, if not the best job I've ever had. But there were some downsides to it, and I, you know, kind of started to feel squeezed out at the end. And, you know, getting word that my dad was in very poor health at home and being uncertain of whether or not his, you know, his current spouse was going to stick around and help with any of that, I... uh boxed up all my figures, again, who were who were proudly on display in my bedroom in Green Bay. You know, I was talking about these plastic shelves that I've gotten from Walmart recently. That's a, that's a thing that started in Green Bay in my apartment there, you know, where they were sticking out from the wall, almost kind of like library shelves. And so you had different ones facing, uh, you know, facing the front of the shelf, facing the back of the shelf. And you know, everyone was out on display. Playmates, Star Trek figures, Hasbro and Kenner Star Wars figures together, Mass Hysteria, you know, Doctor Who figures, you name it. Tweaky, Vincent, the whole Peanuts gang, you know, they were all still there. Well, it, it, I, I needed more and bigger boxes to, <laughs> to box up my collection this time. But this time I did it willingly because I knew I was needed at home. So in late 1999, I was back in Arkansas, which may or may not have been one of the dumbest moves I ever made in my entire life. But uh, there you go. I remember around 2000 or so, I had discovered the wonders of eBay. And I had also gotten a book the previous year called The Star Wars Action Figure Archive by Stephen J. Sansweet, which offered finally... You know, after many years of me kind of wondering, huh, I wonder wonder how many more Star Wars figures they did after I kind of stopped actively collecting. And, and so there was finally a definitive list not only of Kenner's figures, but of Hasbro's figures up to the point right before they started doing the Episode One preview figures in 98. And so using that, I started getting on eBay and saying, huh, you know what, I'm going to fill some gaps. Okay, spoiler alert. I did not fill some gaps. There was one character I got. looked really cool, and I found a complete one. I mean, not on the card. It was loose, but he still had all of his accessories. And it's like, oh, the best of all possible worlds. You know, I don't have to worry about, you know, how much money I would be throwing out the window if I opened him. You know, I could put him on a shelf with his brethren and feel completely okay about that. This character was called a Manaman, and it looks like this giant fluke worm with legs. And it's holding a wooden staff with skulls attached, and with human skulls attached to it. He's, he's one of Jabba's bounty hunters. He's in the background. He has maybe a quarter of a second of screen time. But reference photos of him existed, so he gets an action figure. So, a Manaman. I spent $72 on a Amanaman. I probably could have spent that much on an Amana microwave. You know, back when that was a brand that existed. I am, you know, I'm glad I filled that gap. It was it it felt good. I immediately felt really stupid. It's like, okay. Um, you know what? A complete Kenner collection is not in the cards for me. You know, I was applying the logic that I had learned to apply to my more recent action figure purchases. 
and I was just like, okay, you know, it's, uh, I seem to remember I also got, uh, Anakin Skywalker, the, you know, the forced ghost of Anakin Skywalker from the end of Return of the Jedi. I, I got that Kenner figure. I picked up a few of the Ewoks that I hadn't gotten because I still loved Ewoks. I still love Ewoks. Okay, I'm the guy who likes Porgs. So, yeah, I loved Ewoks, and I wanted the whole, you know, the whole Ewok species that existed in plastic form. And so, you know, I picked up a few Kenner figures, but Man of Man was really the the peak of that, you know, where I spent a ridiculous amount of money on one figure, and then, you know, while I felt good about finally having that gap filled, it was like, ah. Uh uh-uh. no, we're we're not doing this. We're not doing this. Uh, there was another figure that I remember spending about forty bucks for, but that was a custom. It was kind of a kit bashed Star Trek figure. Um, there was a Canadian guy who would do a custom Esri Dax from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Esri was a character who never got her own action figure because Playmates had given up the ghost on the Star Trek action figure line by that time. And so, you know, I had this character that I was, uh, you know, very fond of. So, yeah, I sprung for the custom Kitbash version of that figure. Still have that one. And, you know, discovered that there had been a 7 of 9 figure in the stores. I got that one. And then, you know, I was unimpressed with the fact that they had based the figure on the early publicity photos, which, you know, which were very posed and very kind of super modely because seven of nine was you know hey you know we're we got this babe but she's a borg and the action figure is forever stuck in this weird modeling pose that has nothing to do with the character that actually emerged on our screens so yeah now one other thing that happened in 2000 was that i got married in the summer of 2000. Now, moving back to Arkansas with all of this stuff that I had, you know, in in Green Bay, I had basically had a three-story apartment. It was kind of a loft apartment, but it was three stories. There was a lot of space in that place. Um, it would almost be big enough for the family that I have with me now. There was a basement floor, there was the ground floor, and there was the upper floor, which was you know, the bedroom, it's where the bathroom was, except, you know, I turned it into a combination bedroom and, uh, action figure museum. Um, I am not going to go into specifics of whether or not that the bedroom side of that ever saw any kind of action while I was in my twenties, but man, was I proud of my action figure museum. (laughs) Um, moving back to Arkansas, the apartment that I wound up in was smaller, and so I had to get a storage unit, and I had to put stuff in it. You know, there was a uh, there was a stereo amp that I had had in Green Bay that I had taken with me from Fort Smith to Green Bay. It was now it was now back in Fort Smith. But one thing that had happened in Green Bay was that the two male cats that I had had apparently decided at some point, you know, when the top of you know you left the top open. Um, on the stereo cabinet so this amp could breathe because it, you know, it ran pretty hot. It was, it was a decent stereo amp. 
At some point, one of my cats, probably before I had them fixed, decided, hey, you know what? This vent that, you know, this wonderful warmth is coming up through, I'm totally going to spray this mother. And so apparently more than once, and I think it was Iago, my white cat, um, watered the guts of this stereo amp through the through the vents that were supposed to, uh, you know, allow the heat to get out. Well, probably wasn't a lot of heat getting out with this cat sitting on it. And uh, I can tell you that uh, one reason this amp went into the storage unit never to come out again was that it stank. If you started it up and cranked the volume and, you know, started playing some music, the heat would reactivate the smell the the cat urine odor that had been sprayed onto basically the motherboard of the stereo amp and it reeked to high heaven that amp and some bookshelves that i had carried with me from fort smith and quite a few other things you know, an old black and white tv some computer monitors you know some green screen computer monitors um I don't know why I was still carrying all this stuff with me, but it came back to Fort Smith and went into storage. And, you know, around the first of the month, I would go to the self-storage place, I'd pay my bill, and, you know, I would go unlock my unit, check on my stuff. So about a week before my wedding, which was July the 1st, 2000, I uh, I went to the self-storage unit was like, hey, I'm here to pay early for July. I'm going to be on my honeymoon. Um, so, you know, here's your, I think it was like 32 bucks a month. Here's your 32 bucks. I'll be right back. I'm going to go check on my stuff. One of the things that I had put into storage, and, and before you before you gasp and clutch your pearls, my action figures were not in storage, but their vehicles were. They were in a bunch of... Um, rubber-made roughneck plastic tubs that were sealed up. And this included everything from, you know, what was left of my original Kenner vehicles, like the Millennium Falcon, the Death Star, the Land Speeder, TIE Fighter, the X-Wing, Snow Speeder, Twin Pod Cloud Car, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of play sets were in those tubs as well as a lot of the uh, ships from the Playmates Star Trek line. You know, you had the, you had the great big Enterprise-D, you had the original Enterprise, you had, the, uh, you had Deep Space Nine, you had the Klingon ships, you had the Excelsior, you had the Enterprise-B, you had a shuttlecraft, you had a Cardassian ship, you know, all these things that I had spent gobs of money on. In the interest of trying to foster domestic bliss until I could figure out a display scheme that didn't take up a lot of space in the apartment. I put these things in these tubs in the self-storage unit. And, uh, you know, and I already told you about the, the stereo amp, which was, you know, in storage because it stank. Anyway, so here we are in the last week of June 2000. I uh, went to my storage unit, having uh, paid paid up for July's rent on that storage unit. The padlock did not look like the padlock that I had left on my unit. 
Furthermore, the key that I had on my keychain did not open that padlock. So I went back to the office and I asked if there was a reason that the padlock had been changed. You know, did they go to lock down someone else's unit and accidentally, uh, you know, put a padlock on mine? In, you know, in error? The uh, the guys who were there, they just kind of gave me this blank look. They came to look at it with me and they said, Okay, we've got a pair of bolt cutters that we'll give you to open it. But you have to be the one to cut the lock off. So this I did. Because, it, you know, the storage unit was uh, on Zero Street in Fort Smith. Wasn't that far from the new Walmart. I could go and get a, you know, a new master lock and come back and the thing would only be exposed, I suppose, for, you know, not even half an hour. The problem was, the reason that there was a, uh, a new padlock on my unit was that someone had broken in. Someone had already taken a bolt cutter to the padlock that I had put on there. And they had gotten in and they had stolen a bunch of stuff. Pretty much my entire collection of Star Wars vehicles, most of the play sets, the Star Trek ships, these things were all gone. I asked the manager if they had surveillance videos because, you know, one of their selling points is, you know, we've got cameras everywhere. No one can get in or out of this place without being seen. Curiously enough, hey, my storage unit was suddenly in a surveillance blind spot. It's kind of an odd problem to have for a self-storage unit who's uh, see everything that goes on everywhere surveillance system. They were actually using that as a selling point. I have two words for you. Inside job. So, uh, you know, I could never... You know, I called the police. Could never get anything to stick. They uh, did not take seriously my accusation that... Uh, that this was an inside job and that the managers in the front office were totally in on it. Of course, the Fort Smith PD being what it was in the late 90s, you know, someone probably handed someone a couple of 20s and said, you know, make sure <laughs> nothing happens here. <clears throat> There's one other thing that whoever broke into my unit took that I am still laughing about to this day. They took the amp. They took my stereo amp. Now, picture, if you will, with me for just a moment, the storage unit manager, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the thieves, um, taking the stereo amp home, hooking it up, powering it up, cranking it. My attempts, I, I had... You know, over the past few months, I had tried to, you know, I, when I'd come out to the storage unit, I'd come out with cleaning supplies occasionally. I had taken the screws off the lid of this amp and exposed the guts of it and had sprayed various things on them and let them, you know, and wiped it, wiped it off, dried it down, and then let it air dry, you know, trying to get that odor to disappear. But it never, the, the cat odor was still there. I hope they took it home. I hope they hooked it up. I hope they cranked that thing the hell up. Preferably blasting some John Williams music. Hopefully with all of their friends in the room. Because, you know, about ten minutes into 
playing something with the volume about halfway up on about, you know, on about five on the knob. Well, anyway, now, if you're wondering why I don't sound much more upset about this theft of my collection that I had tried so hard to hang on to and maintain over the years, let me offer you this little postscript. A few years later, I'm going to say this was around 2005-ish, um, my friend Dave, who was at, at the time uh, just just still discovering what a uh, how much time had to be devoted to being a new dad, um, he was still kind of my right hand at thelogbook.com, wrote a lot of episode guide entries, and... Uh, you know, he was he was really the second in command of the site. A friend of his named Andrew, uh, actually his former college roommate, put out feelers looking for a home for his Star Wars collection. Andrew wasn't looking for someone to just hang on to the stuff for him. He wanted to give it away to somebody. He was going to be moving across country. Eventually, he actually left the country to practice veterinary medicine outside the U.S., but he was also looking, he, I mean, he placed no conditions on any of this other than don't just immediately put it on eBay. So he asked Dave if, you know, Dave, do you want this stuff? And Dave was like, I, you know, I have an infant crawling around the house already, you know, trying to put everything in her mouth as babies often do. Um, no, this is not for me, but I know a guy who is actually missing a big chunk of a Star Wars collection who would probably love to have this stuff. So, and there were a few emails exchanged, and, you know, I was cautioned that, you know, there's no, uh, there's no certainty as to what is in these boxes that have been moving around with Andrew for years and years. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a crapshoot. We don't know that it'll actually replace your missing collection, but, you know, it's more or less free. So UPS showed up a few weeks later with three gigantic boxes. And I was pleasantly surprised and eternally grateful to both Andrew and Dave because what I now had almost completely replaced the items that were stolen from the storage unit. Not only that, but these were in better shape than mine had been. Most of them still had most of the pieces and... The vehicles and playsets, they still had the original packaging. The packaging had been opened. But that's, for me, that's perfect. You get to display the boxes and the contents. That's, you know, that's a win-win situation. So suddenly I was a little bit less bummed about the theft of my storage unit in the summer of 2000. Now I could probably still work up a good mad just on the principle of the thing, but... You know, I'm sitting here looking at a boxed but open Death Star playset that's missing maybe one or two pieces total. It's, uh, well, the big one that it's missing is the trash compactor, but I'll explain later what I have done with that empty space at the bottom of the Death Star. And, uh, it, you know, <laughs> you almost start to believe in karma. Now, somewhere around Star Wars Episode Two, um, I hadn't really lost interest. I hadn't lost interest in the movies. 
I hadn't really lost interest in the figures, but I was on a much tighter budget, and so I collected maybe about 20 characters from Episode 2, and most of them, I'm going to tell you right now, were the dramatically posed Jedi from the big lightsaber fight at the end of the movie. You know, which means I have that figure of Samuel L. Jackson, you know, running with this laser sword over his head going, ah! uh, you know, it looks like he's singing opera. <laughs> Episode 3, Rinse and Repeat. I got the main characters. And uh, beyond that, I got the... There was a, a pair of figures that came out in special packaging about a year after the movie. Um, Obi-Wan and Bail Organa, each of them carrying the babies that they are seen with at the end of Episode 3. These, of course, being Baby Luke and Baby Leia. And those were the last... Those were the last uh, Star Wars figures I got for quite some time. Because here's this other thing that happened in 2005. Doctor Who started up again. And with it started this marvelous action figure line, way out of scale with anything I had collected before. These were five and a half to six inch figures. And I had never really, uh, I had never really collected six inch figures. They, you know, they had been a thing since Masters of the Universe, but I hadn't really bothered because I was committed to that, that three and three quarter inch form factor. Um, but I was so enamored of the new Doctor Who, and especially um, once you got to about 2007 and they started rolling out the original series Doctors, oh yeah, I was all in. And so I was still collecting action figures. I was just collecting other action figures. And, you know, the Doctor Who figures from Character Options and Underground Toys have really been my focus since then. Although, you know, as The Force Awakens arrived and as the nostalgia wave hit, and we'll talk about that in a moment, um, you know, my action figure collecting has once again diversified. Now, when I talk about the nostalgia wave, I'm talking about oddball three and three quarter inch figures in kind of the, the Kenner five point of articulation format that Funko and Super 7, and, you know, have done both under the Reaction brand name. Biff Bang Pow has done a bunch of them. Funko has done a bunch of them. So, and, and most of them are tied to nostalgia-based brands, old movies that didn't have their own action figures and should have. So, Back to the Future, um, Biff Bang Pow did the, the original Twilight Zone. Biff Bang Pow also did the 1980 Flash Gordon movie. Uh, they also did uh, the rock group Kiss, which I love those figures. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a fair weather fan when it comes to Kiss as far as music, but the moment that I saw an action figure of Gene Simmons with his tongue with with his tongue sticking out, you know, playing his bass, I'm like, there's somebody who needs to be with the Cantina band, <laughs> and so I, uh, you know, definitely picked that up, and there have been. Um, in addition to nostalgia brands, there have been much more recent genre developments, such as The Fifth Element and Firefly that got their own action figures finally. And, uh, however, the nostalgia thing has really been what stuck for these various brands. And so now have Super 7 doing They Live, 
uh, Rocky Four, um, Funko did Gremlins. Uh, Super Seven is going to be doing Aliens in the coming year, and they're also going to be start doing sports mascots. And so, I'm totally getting a Philly fanatic. Um, Funko has stuck with more recent things. They've done these Kenner style figures for Stranger Things, which you know I definitely got those. Um, Ready Player One had a line. The recent uh, the recent movie version of It. Got three and three quarter inch figures. Now I didn't bother with those because I wasn't terribly fond of it. <laughs> I wasn't fond of it. Um, and then uh, Funko has also started doing kind of ironic nostalgia brands. There was a box set of three and three quarter action figures for the Golden Girls that I missed, and you now cannot get that set for lover money. I mean, you're looking at three hundred bucks for a set still in the box. And the box is such that you can open them, take them out, put them back in. Me, I, I want one of those sets, and I want to open them. And I want to give them free reign over the Death Star. I mean, if Palpatine tries to shoot lightning at anybody, Sophia is going to, you know, put him in his place. You got your unlimited power right here, buddy. Um, and there have been other, there have been original brands in that format. Uh, Legends of Cthulhu that Warpo Toys did several years back. I loved those. I'm, I'm kind of crushed that a second wave has never materialized. Um, Super 7's The Worst Line is a lot of fun. I'm, uh, I still haven't got my Cortex Commander yet, which is basically, it's a guy in a military uniform with a, clear dome for a head and a brain inside that's commander cortex that's not from any particular movie or comic book or tv series it's just something original they've done um archie mcphee did a very brief line called strange friends and the best figure out of that line is a perfectly normal human body sneakers red tracksuit you know jogging pants the head is a pug sold i totally ordered one of those the moment i saw it fungo did a a line of three and three quarter inch figures for the 1966 batman tv series that i loved and i feel so burned because a second wave never happened from that um the only uh they were saving robin for the second wave that's how tragic this is. You only got a Robin figure if you sprang for the Batmobile box set, which I did because that's amazing. But we never got the Joker. We never got the Penguin. We never got the Riddler. We never got Alfred. We never got a Batcave. I'm, you know, if there is a, you know, I gripe about um, Funko's Firefly action figures stopping short of giving us Shepherd Book and River and Simon Tam. But really, if if there is any of these modern figure lines that I feel really burned on, it's Batman 66. The Doctor Who figures now come out at a very, fortunately for my budget, a very slow pace compared to in the past. Uh, they're still supporting that uh, 5.5 to 6-inch scale, despite a brief flirtation with three and three quarter inch that ironically this time I did not sign up for. Um, but I mean, we've gotten figures as recent as 
uh, the 13th Doctor, played by Jodie Whittaker. Uh, Harry Sullivan finally got an action figure. This is a this was a companion for one season in 1975, and he comes with a box set of Santarans, and that's just arrived in the past year. Another thing I dearly love is the Star Wars vintage collection that Hasbro has been doing for several years now. They almost stopped doing it. Now, this started when they were doing the um, the Blu-ray release of the original trilogy uh, several years after um, Revenge of the Sith. They started doing... What the vintage collection is, is it's new figures with you know more modern detailing and articulation. They're not trying to look like the Kenner figures, but they are on Kenner-style packaging. If it is a character that was released by Kenner, they use the same packaging, the same photo, the same logo, everything else. But they also do Kenner-style packaging for characters from Rogue One or The Force Awakens or... The Last Jedi, they're going to be doing these for The Mandalorian um, in April of 2020, which I uh, really look forward to those because, you know, I, I just want to see what photo they're going to put on Baby Yoda's card. Anyway, that's that's very much a presence on the packaged wall that I talk about that's behind me in the background of my uh, YouTube camera shot if you've seen any of the Phosphor.Fossil videos. And for a while, I was also collecting the kind of the price point, five point of articulation Star Wars figures that Hasbro was putting out as each new movie came out. Uh, you know, The Last Jedi had them, Force Awakens had them, Solo, Rogue One had them. And again, you know, I'm really restricting myself to main characters or background characters of interest. Um... So, I I have noticed, however, going into Rise of Skywalker, that the Five Point of Articulation line seems to have vanished in favor of going of throwing everything at the vintage collection. So I kind of wonder how well that's going to go over with uh, the consumer who's having to shell out extra for uh, classic style packaging. You know, the the vintage collection figures tend to uh, cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 bucks a piece now, whereas the uh, the five-point of articulation figures on the smaller cards, the ones that I was getting in opening from the new movies, tended to be maybe seven or eight bucks. Maybe you could wait <laughs> to see if the movie took off or not, wait for them at clearance. Now, uh, Hasbro also recently, and I mean recently as in uh, first half of this year, they did a very brief line of reproduction. Uh, you know, they tried to reproduce the Kenner figures and again put them on the vintage packaging, except the package was, the, the cards were printed with kind of photoshopped weathering on them. You know, it looked like they were beat up, but they weren't. I I passed on that. I took a hard pass on that. The one exception, the one that I got suckered into, uh, and, and it was really more of a side effect, you know, it's really more of a bug than a feature, was that I did get the reprint that Hasbro did of the Escape from the Death Star board game, which I had as a kid, and, you know, disappeared in, you know, along with the rest of my stuff from the summer of 2000. 
Um, the Escape from the Death Star board game was a Target exclusive that came with a Kenner-style figure of Grand Moff Tarkin. And, you know, it's it's cool. I like the figure. I've left it on the card. What really honked me off is there's this giant sticker on the card that you cannot take off without damaging the card that says Retro Collection. Because you know somewhere some hardcore collectors were losing their bottle. You know, you're going you're gonna to reproduce the Kenner figures? Uh-uh, mine are going to be worth nothing. And so that was the that was the trade-off. The most recent ones that I picked up, for the record, these were about, um, I guess these were about a month, month and a half, close to two months ago, whenever Force Friday was. <laughs> um, I, I picked up Poe Dameron and X-Wing Luke from the latest round of the Vintage Collection. And, uh, and they are now hanging on hooks. It's kind of funny. You know, I, I get action figures now. I, I get them off the hook at the store. I pay for them. I bring them home. I hang them on another hook, on another set of retail fixtures behind me. So, <laughs> there you go. There are lots of action figures I would love to see in a three three quarter inch format. Um, you know, while we are leaning so hard on nostalgia brands and genre nostalgia brands, I would love to see Babylon Five figures. You know, there were six inch figures in the nineties, and I I got them all, even the weird variants and the really rare ones like the Shadow Creature. But I would love to see them in a smaller format. Farscape. Lex, Stargate SG-1. And, you know, some of these I know have already had larger scale figures, but I also know that they had very limited character selection. It'd be nice to see someone take another stab at those, maybe in a more affordable and space and display friendly format. So let's ask kind of the big questions. Let's get back to psychoanalyzing myself. Am I ever going to part with these things that I keep accumulating, you know, at a trickle compared to in the past, but I do keep accumulating. My gut feeling is to wait and see. Do my kids want anything to do with these? My oldest, kind of surprisingly, shows no inclination of interest in really the broader Star Wars thing. I mean, he latches onto characters, you know, like Porgs and so on. Um, he definitely, definitely likes Baby Yoda. Is he interested in my collection? No, not really. And when I'm gone, and someday I will be, it's, it's really no concern of mine. They're not being buried with me. Um... You know, at various points during my <laughs> during my marriage, it was suggested, you know, hey, we're in a spot. You need to start selling everything. And what I always told her were, you know, mine have been open. They have been very well played with. They're old friends, and at this point, they probably have very little value to someone 
trying to find old Kenner figures. They will be looking for clean ones. They will be looking for ones that are still in the original packaging. These aren't. And both my parents smoked like burning buildings. Um, let's put it this way. I've got some very yellow stormtroopers. Just, you know, just from picking up, you know, tobacco from the air that was inescapable in that house. And that has a lot to do with, you know, my health issues as an adult. Thanks, Mom and Dad. So, you know, are they worth anything now? Probably not as much as you'd think. Now, as far as this weird environment that I have built around myself down here in my basement in Utah, complete with retail fixtures and hooks and action figures still on the cards, and in some cases, you know, some very old vintage uh, ships and vehicles and play sets that I have the boxes for. Uh, so I've kind of built this thing that's kind of like a store. And it's not just the action figures. Um, I've got, I've accumulated some more of these grid wall fixtures since we've lived here, usually from places or individuals going out of business. And so I can tell you right now that I have not spent, I haven't spent $100 on grid wall fixtures total to this date. Um, because, you know, I kind of, <laughs> it's kind of weird. I'm kind of waiting for other people's misfortune <laughs> to be able to pick that stuff up. But I have Atari cartridges, Odyssey 2 cartridges hanging up on shelves and hooks. I have LPs. You know, I have one kind of, uh, kind of a mini wall that's all ELO albums. I have another one that's all Alan Parsons Project albums. The, you know, the wall behind me that you see behind me in the YouTube videos, there's stuff on there that you never get to see. There's a, there's an area that's devoted to vintage space shuttle toys from the 1970s that are the same ones that I was collecting as a kid, only I've tracked them down now, still on their packaging. The space shuttle toys were so generic. This, you know, this is not a huge amount of money that has been spent on this. And really, for the most part, not a lot of money has been sunk into it. The Atari and Odyssey games, uh, these are the same ones I've been hauling around with me for 40 years. Or in some cases, uh, there, was a, there was a bunch of uh, Atari games that I acquired. Actually, they're not even the games. They're just the boxes. Someone was getting rid of the boxes. They had them flattened out, and they shipped them to me for a few bucks. And... I put styrofoam slabs from, you know, various packaging from other things, you know, and, and packing material from the move, you know, and filled them out so that, you know, they aren't going to go flat again. And so you have a bunch of boxes that have no games in them. It's a display piece that happened with, uh, you know, very little outlay on my part. And... The fact of the matter is a lot of the stuff behind me that, you know, people kind of gawk at. And, wow. You know, this happens a lot um, in pre-show for Mission Log Live is that, you know, we have people show up in the Zoom meeting. I, you know, I do not appear in Mission Log Live. I'm pushing buttons behind the scenes. But the guests 
who are on the show see me and the hosts of the show see me. And they're just like, whoa, here's the secret. A lot of the Star Wars, all of the Star Wars figures back here are vintage collection. They are not original Kenner. They are Hasbro in the classic style packaging. And quite a few of them were gotten on clearance when Hastings, which was a, uh, a music chain that diversified once the, uh, you know, once the downloadable music era hit and people were no longer buying tapes and CDs anymore, Hastings diversified into all sorts of geeky merchandise. But they priced it into the stratosphere and then went out of business several years ago. I'm thinking this was 2012 they went out of business, maybe? Hastings used to carry a lot of the reaction figures. They carried, um, you know, they carried Star Wars figures. They carried the Biff Bang Pow figures like the Twilight Zone and Flash Gordon. Most of the stuff back there was got on clearance at Hastings for about two or three bucks each. The few vintage pieces that are back there, like Star Trek The Motion Picture or The Next Generation, either they were picked up very inexpensively in a small eBay lot, or they were given to me by people who still had them and were like, why do I still have these? And so, you know, I... You know, I mentioned it came up frequently in my marriage that not only was I hauling around action figures that were verging on 40 years old at the time, but I was still accumulating more. It's because I do so very sparingly and very cheaply. I am not going to stop paying the bills because there's an action figure that I want coming out. You have to have a little bit of common sense about this thing. And so... One of the reasons I built this environment down here where you have things on store displays, basically, is that kind of going back to my weird, isolated childhood, you know, walking into service merchandise, walking into Montgomery Ward, walking into Sears toy section, because we did not have a Toys R Us in Fort Smith, Arkansas until the 1990s. Um... You know, walking into those places, and they had everything that you didn't already have. And it was just, you know, you, you just, your breath caught in your throat for a second. It's like, oh my gosh, these guys have everything. It doesn't matter if we're talking, you know, Star Wars action figures, you know, that new LP that I wanted. Oh, there's that new Atari game I don't have yet. There's the latest Odyssey 2 cartridge. Wow. I just like that moment of discovery where, you know, anything's anything's possible. It's like, oh, I'm, you know, I might actually get to come out of here with something. And, you know, it's that moment. You know, that moment in time, I'm kind of trying to trap it in amber, that little moment of discovery and wonder and, oh, holy cow, do I, you know, do I get to pick one of these out? Yeah, you know, I didn't always get to pick one of these out. I didn't always get to pick one of these out. You know, you come home from the store empty-handed more often <laughs> than you come home with, you know, a new little friend. But, you know, it's, it's that moment of possibility that I've tried to recapture down here. And that's why I've done what I've done. It's a, it's a weird 
choice as far as decoration goes. I understand and acknowledge that. And, you know, it's it's definitely a, a single dude man cave thing. But so much of my life as an adult, especially especially the past you know, 10 or 15 years that have been really rough where you see possibilities for your future collapsing. You see possibilities being taken away from you. You know, you're not going to be able to keep the house. You're not going to be able to keep the job. You're not going to be able to get the job that you want. Possibilities just being snatched out from under you left and right. You're going to have to forgive me if I want to recapture in my own little way, you know, maybe in miniature, because I'm not trying to rebuild a whole store here. It's kind of like a, a convention booth on steroids is really what it looks like. You're going to have to forgive me if I want to capture a moment where there are possibilities and they seem endless. So you know what? I just looked... <laughs> Just looked at the clock and realized that I have gone on and on for over an hour on this topic. And normally don't give this tape to Earl as kind of a multi-topic thing where there will be there will be a main topic, but I also talk about space missions and shows that I've been watching and soundtracks I've been listening to. I've decided that contrary to what I said at the beginning of the show, there is going to be another Don't Give This Tape to Earl this year. And it's going to be part two of this show. Patreon folks, you may get it a little bit sooner than everyone else because I may roll out the rest of it in time for, well, it's not going to be in time for Thanksgiving because this is barely in time for Thanksgiving. I will roll it out in time for, uh, you know, the end of the year at some point and, you know, get milk one more show out of this thing because I, I, I don't want to do a four hour podcast. I've, you know, I've reached the end of my notes that I had written out for uh, the action figure collecting topic. There, there's still stuff to talk about. I want to talk about The Mandalorian. I want to talk about uh, Star Trek Picard. I want to talk about For All Mankind. I want to talk about the upcoming season of Doctor Who and all these soundtracks that have come out. And I want to talk about the hair-tearing-out frustration of trying to switch from my very rudimentary media server setup that I had before to a Plex server for the convenience of other people living under the same roof with me. Definitely not my convenience, I'll tell you that right now. But let's save that for another show. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for staying with me. Um, thanks for sticking with me through the radio silence. It's been... 2019 has been a hell of a year, and this has been... One hell of a decade. Apart from just a handful of things, and, you know, I'm really looking at, you know, I made a few new friends who are still with me. I had a second kid who I loved to little bits. Him and his little messy head of hair and his blue eyes and the fact that he is unable to simply walk into a room. He has to stomp or jump or run into it full tilt like there is a bear chasing him. And, you know, my 
gradually growing association with, uh, you know, with Roddenberry Entertainment. That's been kind of neat. Those have been the highlights. This is, this has been a miserable decade. A lot of it has been spent out of work, and that spent to, uh, you know, half of this decade being spent as a divorced dad. Uh, this has not been an easy decade. I am hoping that 2020 sees things turning around. I hope 2020 sees things turning around for all of us. I don't want to get hip deep into politics here, but we have an election coming up, and I think it's safe to say the future of the world is riding on the outcome of that election. Don't let anyone convince you not to vote. Don't let anyone convince you your vote does not matter. It really does. You know, I walk into the booth and push the buttons or flip the levers or punch out the little things, you know, whatever it is, because I have two little boys who have a future that stretches way past any future that I might have. I'm not voting to make my future more comfortable. I am voting to make their future survivable. And we'll leave it at that. So we'll catch you on the flip side with part two of this show. Thanks for listening. Micronaut Space Warriors, all sold separately. Space Glider, Galactic Warrior, Time Traveler, made to fit the Micronaut vehicles, like the Photon Sled. You can stage make-believe battles against a Croyer. Like all Micronauts, a Croyer has interchangeable parts, so you can create your own toys. Micronauts, made of plastic and die-cast metal, each sold separately by Mego. Computer subspace transmission to Starfleet Command from Enterprise. Stardate 45481.4. It's a single blast. Source unknown. Lieutenant Worf checks weapon systems. Captain Picard orders full shields from Lieutenant LaForge in engineering. Suddenly there is an alien presence on the ship. It's one of the board, a hostile robotic life form. Commander Riker returns phaser fire. Star Trek, the next generation. Action figures each sold separately from Playmates. The Doctor, Rose, and the TARDIS are under attack by the Krillitane, the Werewolf, and the Cyberman Army. 
But trusty canine and the doctor can fight them off. Let battle commence. Doctor Who action figures and playsets. From character. It's the Bespin Guard. Halt, strangers. Take us to Lando Calrissian. Follow me. From Kenner's Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection. Action figures each sold separately. I'm Lando. Who's there? Han Solo on a mission with a rebel soldier. What's your mission? We're fighting the Empire. And we need your help. Han Solo, Rebel Soldier, Lando Calrissian, and Bespin Guard each sold separately. From Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection. New from Kenner.